Good morning, everybody. Morning, everyone. Uh, today's one of those mornings where I'm speaking here and then heading down the road to 5.02, so need to, to uh, interrupt your conversations and, and crack on. Uh, just one clarification with the Christmas carol choir, that is specifically for the Christmas Eve carol service. So those who want to be on Christmas Eve singing in the carol service, it's that choir which we'll be rehearsing from next Sunday evening. Uh, we, as leaders, are recently doing some uh, kind of uh, self-examination in terms of the different strengths and gifts that we have and how those might work together. And as we were doing that, I, I kind of realized something about myself which perhaps I hadn't seen before in terms of my commitment to community. Um, the things I do outside of church life and family life, the things I do to kind of relax and refresh, tend to be uh, physical exercise. That's what I like doing. So I run and I cycle and I go to the gym. And I was thinking about those things because those are all actually solitary pursuits. You can run on your own and you can cycle on your own and you can go to the gym on your own. But I hardly ever actually run or cycle or, or go to the gym on my own. I almost always do it with other people. So when I run, I'm normally running with people from my running club or at Park Run. If I go to the gym, I go to a class, not just to do solitary exercises. If I cycle, I always prefer to go out with a group of friends. And I was thinking, well, why is that? And, and looking at the, this, this kind of self-assessment tool we were using, I, I realized it's because of my, I have a particularly strong commitment to community, which means that I always prefer to do things with other people where possible. And as I reflect on that, I realize that actually that sense of belief, that sense of conviction, really comes from a fundamental belief about community in terms of what I understand about the church. That I have a, a profound, intense sense of conviction, a sense of belief about who we are meant to be as the people of God together. And that then affects how I organize other things in my life. That I tend to choose to be with other people rather than do things on my own, even if I'm doing things which I could do on my own. At the moment, we're in a seven-week series from the book, books of Colossians and Philemon, and uh, we're looking at seven coordinates for navigating life. We're into the third week. The first two weeks, we looked at prayer, and then last week, we looked at the theme of Christ being over all. And this morning, we're going to look at the theme of the church, of what it is to be the community of God, the people of God. If you've got a Bible, turn uh, one of these Bibles. It's on page 1182. We're going to be... Uh, dipping over a few places in the letter to Colossians this morning. But at the beginning of this letter, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Colossae, and verse 3 says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Why? Two reasons. First reason, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. That's good. This is a church which had faith in Christ Jesus. Secondly, because of the love you have for all God's people. This was a church which loved the church. This was a people who loved the people of God. This was a church made up of people who were committed to community, who loved the church. And the thing I want to talk about this morning is how we also can be a church which loves the church. If you've uh, had one of these the last couple of weeks, I think we've run out. So if you're new today and haven't picked one up, I'm sorry. We had a, a couple of hundred copies printed and they all seem to have gone. Uh, I hope you're enjoying this. If you've got it, I've been working through this day by day. I find it really helpful. Anybody else been using it? Good. If you haven't, get into it. It's really helpful stuff to reinforce what we're learning on Sundays. Right, three ways then for us to love the church. First thing is 
loving the church for the supremacy of Christ. Look at verse 18 of Colossians chapter 1. It says this, And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus is supreme in everything, and Jesus is head of the church. It's two things that verse says. He's supreme in everything, and he's head of the church. We need to see how those two things hold together. Now, the head is the source. It's where life comes from. You lose your head, and you die. Without your head, there is no life. Last week was Halloween, and there were some people walking around with costumes, headless costumes. But, of course, in reality, if you don't have a head, you die. You don't walk around, even as a zombie. If you don't have a head, you just, you're dead without a head. The head is the source of our life. Without the head, there actually isn't a functioning body. The body is dependent upon the head for its life. And the imagery that the Apostle Paul is using here is a very organic one. It's a very physical one, a very bodily one, that there's an organic, an essential connection between Christ Jesus and his people, the church. And the body, the church, is a body. It's, it's united. It functions. It's meant to function like a body does, coordinated, organized, held together. But it's made up of many different parts, different functions, connected to the head that is Christ Jesus. Now, if you think about bodies, our bodies are absolutely astounding. I was, I was looking this up the other day. There are 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. It's a picture of the Milky Way, our galaxy. 100 billion stars in the galaxy. But in your body and in my body, there are 37.2 trillion cells. Now, I get very confused with all the zeros, but... Um, a, a, a trillion is a thousand billion. There's a hundred billion stars in the Milky Way. You can't work it out. There's too many to, to get your head and your mind around. You can't count them literally, physically. You'd, you'd never have enough time to count a hundred billion. But there are 37,000 billion cells in your body. Isn't that amazing? This is the complexity of the human body. Think about the miracle of what our bodies can do, that we can see, that we can taste, that we can touch. I just don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable, but just shake the hand of the person next to you. Put your hand on their shoulder. There's a physical person. Don't touch a knee. You could lose your job if you touch somebody's <laughs> knee. Get into all kinds of trouble for touching a knee. But you can shake a hand or... The Bible does say in a number of places to greet one another with a holy kiss. You get into all kinds of trouble for that these days as well. But as Christians, we can do these things and do them properly. So physical... Let me touch your knee, Carlos, if you don't mind. Physical flesh and blood that we're together, amazing bodies. Carlos is an amazing body made of 37.2 trillion cells. His ability to see and to taste and to touch, to sense, just extraordinary. Think about the miracles of respiration and digestion and reproduction, these miracles of life. Think about the miracle of consciousness. How is it that we have a sense of who we are this morning, that we're sitting here not simply surviving, not simply eating, feeding, sleeping, reproducing, but conscious of who we are as individuals and able to understand what it means to connect with other conscious beings. Science has no explanation for human consciousness. It, 
There's a lot of talk about artificial intelligence getting there, but it's miles off. There's, there's no explanation for human consciousness. It's, scientifically, it's mysterious still. As Christians, of course, it's not a mystery at all. We know that the reason that we understand consciousness, why I know I'm alive, I have a sense of self, why you do, and why we can then connect together, is because we're made in the image of God. Amen. So that we are conscious. God has given us consciousness. Human bodies are just... Absolutely extraordinary. But we're also pretty puny in many ways. The, the next, next picture. The, see a little human down there? A little tiny dot. The average human being, typical human being, is normally somewhere between five foot and six foot tall. Not very big. Hyperion, the largest, tallest tree, a coast red, redwood, largest tree in the world, is 379 feet tall. That would, it would need 70 of us to stand foot to head to get to the same height as Hyperion, compared to Hyperion, we're itty, little itty-bitty puny things. Or think about the blue whale, the largest mammal, the largest animal that's ever existed, 190 tons, that's more than 3,000 people's worth of whale swimming around. Apparently the on a global scale, a global average, the average human being weighs 136 pounds, just under 10 stone. Because I'm British and male, I'm taller and heavier than the average global picture. But even so, compared with an ant, I'm a giant, but actually on the grand scheme of things, I'm little puny nothing compared to Hyperion, compared to a blue whale. We're, we're very small. So... Our bodies with their 37.2 trillion cells are just extraordinary in all we can do, but at the same time, we're aware of our smallness, aren't we? But as Christians, we are part of a much greater body. More amazing than the amazing things we can think about these bodies, and so much greater than the smallness we might feel about ourselves as well. And this church, and local churches like this church, is is a body, a body of the people of God. And the, and the body imagery is easy to see and apply when it comes to a local church like this. We've experienced it already this morning when you came in, Becca was there greeting you on the door. Mick and Jean served you a cup of tea or coffee. Richard introduced the meeting. John and Gemma and the band led us in worship. The PA team make sure that we can hear it. Will and Peter are walking around collecting the offering and making sure there's enough chairs out. You can see the body functioning as we gather Sunday by Sunday like this. But the emphasis of what Paul is saying here when he talks about Christ as the head of the church is not so much about local churches like this one. He's talking the big picture. He's talking about the universal church. He's talking about all Christians, wherever they may be, scattered throughout time and space. And it can be harder to understand the imagery of the body when we think about that because if it's somebody who's sitting next to you and you can grasp their hand as a sense of the connectedness of the body. But if we're thinking about the church, which is all Christians throughout all time and in all places, well, that's harder to grasp because there's millions, billions of people who will never know, never see, at least until glory. And so when we talk about being part of that body, what does that mean? Now, it makes sense when we start to think about Jesus as the head, that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's a living head that gives life to all the body. It's different from any human head. Sometimes humans have this position of headship. Think about the queen who is head of the commonwealth. 
what that means is that there's this kind of loose gathering of nations who have some sense of connection because of our shared history, and somehow the queen unites them in some way. She's head of the commonwealth, but Christ's headness is of a completely different order from that of the queen being head of the commonwealth or any other kind of human headship, headness we might think of. What Paul says here about the headness of Christ, the headship of Christ, is that he is the head of the church. He is the firstborn and the beginning who has been raised from the dead. What that is saying is that Jesus stands at the beginning of a a whole new order. He's the founder of a new order of resurrection life. Jesus Christ died in the body, raised to new life in the body. He now reigns over the body of the church and over all things. And through him, we too will be raised to new life. Everything has changed because Jesus has been raised from the dead. His resurrection has upended the entire order of things. The normal order of things is that you are born, you live, and you die, and that's it. Jesus was born. He lived, he died, and he rose again. And he put everything into a different gear. Everything was changed. Everything was transformed. There's this new order of resurrection life where death is no longer the final word, but resurrection life is. And now as we think about the miracle of our incredible bodies, and often when we think about our bodies, what we're thinking of is not the miracle of 37.2 trillion cells and the miracles of seeing and tasting and breathing and living. We're thinking more often about our frailties and our weaknesses and all the things which our bodies can't do. But we have this hope of resurrection life where these bodies will be made perfect as Christ's body is perfect. He's changed all things. The resurrection from the dead changes everything. And because Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, this means that he is supreme over all things. Because Jesus has beaten death, he is sovereign over everything else. Jesus has power over a rebellious world. He's going to bring all of creation under his rule, under his headship. It's not head in the same way that the queen is head of the commonwealth. He's not head in the same way that a head teacher is head teacher of a school. No, his headship is of an utterly different order because he has been raised from the dead. And so it says in verse 20 that he's going to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is going to reconcile all things to himself. He's making all things new because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Hallelujah. The resurrection of Christ changes everything. And the point is that this is now being worked out and experienced through the church. That those of us who are Christians, who are part of the church of Jesus Christ, as we are connected to him, the head, we are experiencing something of resurrection life now. The church is where we see the supremacy of Christ in operation, in some degree, right here right now. It's in the church that as we come week by week, as we gather together, as we experience what it is to be part of a body, part of the body of Christ, as we come week by week, as we break bread and take wine and proclaim his death until he comes, as we come together and sing songs of praise to him, as we sit under the authority of the word that he has given us, we see something of the rule 
of Christ being worked out and displayed in bodies like this around the world. The rule of Christ, the headship of Christ is made known in some degree. It points to what will ultimately be true for all things when all things are reconciled to Christ Jesus, that he is going to rule over all things. Everything is going to be transformed because of his resurrection, power, and life. And so if we're part of the church, we need to see what we're part of. We need to see the miracle of the body. And the way that we'll see that is not by looking at ourselves, because when we look at ourselves, we don't see the magnificence, we actually see the puniness. We'll see what it means to be the body of Christ when we look to the head and see who he is and what he is like and what he has done. When we understand his resurrection power, his resurrection life, when we understand we're organically connected to him, then we begin to understand his body, the church. And we'll see that we're called to love Jesus by loving his people, by loving his body, by loving the church, that we're to proclaim the supremacy of Christ in all things as we recognize his rule over us in his body, his people, in his church, a church like this here this morning. We look to the head and we love his people and we love him and we proclaim his supremacy. That's the first thing, loving the church for the supremacy of Christ. The second thing, is loving the church through suffering. Chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Paul is here claiming that he's suffering for the church at Colossae. And it's clear that Paul is suffering. We know that Paul wrote this letter from prison. We don't know quite where we think it's probably from the city of Rome. At the end of the letter, he says, remember my chains. We know that he's actually physically, literally imprisoned, chained up at the time when he writes this letter. And the reason that he's chained up is because of his faith in Jesus Christ and because he's been proclaiming the gospel and the trouble that's caused. So he is literally, physically, tangibly suffering. But the question to ask is, how is he suffering for them? How is he suffering for these Christians, this church in Colossae? Because he hadn't actually founded the church in Colossae. We think that's Epaphras. He hadn't even been there. He'd never actually visited this church in person. So how can he say that I'm suffering for you? The reason is because Paul is suffering for the church. Paul is suffering on behalf of God's people wherever they may be. And the Colossian church is part of that. Just as we are. Local churches like ours, like the church in Colossae, are part of this bigger church, the church. And Paul is suffering for the church. And as he suffers for the church, then he's suffering for the Colossians as well. And Paul says this strange thing, that he's filling up the afflictions of Christ. Now, now what does that mean? It can't mean that he's adding something to what Christ has done in order to complete what Christ left undone, because Christ completed all his work. Christ is the great high priest who made a final and a total sacrifice. Jesus has done 
something which, to which nothing needs to be added and nothing can be added. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He's the atoning Lamb of God. He's the one who's carried the sins of the world, the wrath of his Father, so that we might be forgiven. There's nothing else which needs to be added. There's nothing else which can be added to the sacrifice of Christ, Christ Jesus. His, Christ's sufferings were complete and total and final. So what does Paul mean by saying that he's filling up the afflictions of Christ? I think what Paul is driving at here is that God's people always endure suffering as we wait for Christ's return. Christ is supreme over all things, and we will see his supremacy over all things, but while we wait for Christ's return to manifest his supremacy over all things, his people, the church, go through seasons of suffering, and that's because there is a conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And so suffering is always part of the experience of the church. Think what it says in Revelation chapter 6, the Apostle John's vision of the last things. He has this vision of all kinds of scenes happening around the world and in heaven. And as part of his vision, he sees this. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign lords, holy and true? until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. The Apostle John sees a vision of the end of the ages and there are those who have been martyred for the faith who are waiting for Jesus to vindicate himself and vindicate his people, saying, How long, O Lord? And the response is, Well, there's still more to happen. There's more conflict to endure. There are more of your brothers and sisters who will actually give their lives for the sake of the gospel until the end of the ages comes. And so when Paul talks about afflictions being lacking, what he's talking about is a time of conflict is not yet over. In Acts 14, we read about how Paul and Barnabas traveling around different regions, starting different churches and going back and strengthening the churches, what they say to those churches is this, we must, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We're in a season of conflict. The kingdom of darkness is opposed to the kingdom of God. It means that the people of God will at times suffer for being faithful to Jesus Christ. The people of Christ participate in the sufferings of Christ. And the Apostle Paul, as an apostle who was essential, pivotal in causing the gospel to break out of Israel and go to the nations, he has a particularly close association with the sufferings of Christ because of the nature of his mission, the nature of his calling. Now our commission from God, our calling from God is not the same as Paul's. None of us have been called to do what Paul did. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called into the service of the body of Christ. And at times that will involve conflict. Paul is in chains when he writes this. His suffering for the church is very obvious, very physical, very tangible. But he doesn't resent his suffering. See what he says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering. Is Paul a masochist? No, it's not that he's seeking out pain out of some bizarre, twisted, warped personality quirk. No, he, the reason he's rejoicing in his suffering is because of what he knows it's achieving. 
that actually somehow through his suffering, the kingdom of darkness is being pushed back. And the kingdom of light, the supremacy of Christ in all things is being made plain. And Paul has found something which is worth suffering for. You know, if you, if you truly love something, you'll suffer for it. Every human being knows that. Something really worth having. Something really worth laying hold of. Something you really desire is something which is worth suffering for. You know, there's a kind of genius about the concept of sacrifice. That you give something in the expectation, in the hope that you'll get something else. It's why every body and every culture sacrifices. Because the hope is we'll give this up, we'll pay this cost, we'll suffer in this way in order that we'll get something else which is better. And for most people and most cultures, that sacrifice becomes something which is twisted and often destructive and people sacrifice things they shouldn't and whole cultures are built around sacrificing things which are actually distorted and evil and wrong. But right sacrifice is amazing. It's this confidence you give something up, you suffer something in order to lay hold of something which is so much more precious, so much more vital, so much more worthwhile. You know, suffering in a sense defines what it is to be human. If you haven't found something worth sacrificing for, what kind of person are you really alive? If you haven't found something worth sacrificing for, you're just kind of existing. Human exists. We need a cause. Human beings need a purpose. We're made for purpose. We're made for a cause, for, for something, to, something substantial. We're, there's meant to be something which grabs a human heart, which you say, yes, I'm going to sacrifice for that because that's what I want to live for. That's what I'm committed to. That's what I want to obtain. That's what I want to achieve. It's that which drives all human accomplishments, all human progress, all human success. We're meant to live for a cause, and a cause always requires sacrifice. And if you haven't found something to sacrifice for, I'm not sure you're even alive. And Paul has found something that he's prepared to suffer for, something he's prepared to sacrifice for because he's found the pearl of great price. He's seen who Jesus is, the head of the church, the one who is supreme over all things. And he knows that his suffering is worthwhile because of the reward that he will receive. Now, do we feel this way about the church? Paul rejoiced in his sufferings for the church because he saw what Jesus was going to do through the church. So we feel like that about the church. You know, it might be that you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, and this is the weirdest thing you've ever heard. Sacrifice, suffer for this, for people like this. Why would you do that? The reason you do that is because this is the most amazing thing, to lay hold of Christ, to know him, to have this hope that he is raised from the dead and he can raise you from the dead, that he has put everything into reverse, that rather than just being born and living and dying, it's now being born and living and dying and being raised again and living forever in his presence in a world made perfect and good, in a body which is perfect and good, with perfect relationship, perfect joy and peace. That is a prize worth sacrificing for. How we love the church? We love the church through suffering. And the third thing is loving the church in order to stay healthy. Drop down to chapter 2, verse 16. 
In this passage, Paul's addressing the issues, the reasons really why he's written to the Colossians, some false teaching that's began to circulate amongst them. He's seeking to correct. He says, Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. The problem that was beginning to develop in Colossae was that some people were saying, Jesus isn't enough. You need Jesus, but you need Jesus plus. You need Jesus plus something else. That If you're going to be really spiritually right, if you're going to be really right with God, if you're going to live life right, then you need Jesus. Yes, but you need other stuff as well as Jesus. And we're not sure entirely what was going on, but Paul gives some clues here about the kind of things that were being taught and the kind of things that were being said. That people, Some people were saying you had to keep certain diet rules. There were things you could eat and things you couldn't eat if you really wanted to be right with God. And there were certain days that you were meant to observe in a particular way and keep if you were to be right with God. And there were kind of deeper, spiritual, higher spiritual insights which you had to learn if you were to be right with God. And Paul says that In doing this, they were losing connection with the head. They were losing connection with Christ Jesus himself. Now, the health of the body depends on connection with the head. If your body isn't connected to your head, you die. And Paul says that if you say it's Christ plus, actually you're killing yourself spiritually. You're jeopardizing your spiritual health. Now, the contemporary parallels with what Paul's warning about here are actually remarkably clear. If we think about food, there is this... I've talked about it before because it's such an important thing, I think, in our society. There is such a strong message which comes from so many channels that you'll be saved by the things that you eat or don't eat. Salvation by diet. The gospel of salvation by food hear it all the time. Keep your eyes open. Watch what's on telly. Read the magazines. Look at the underlying message. What's actually being said, even if it's not being explicitly said, what is being said implicitly is you get right, you get saved by eating this and not by eating that. Especially by denying yourself. So Paul says, verse 21, people are saying, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. And then verse 23, he says, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, we see that all around us all the time, that all the time we're getting given salvation advice through diet about self-imposed, actually it is worship. It's a self-obsession, which is actually the issue, and it's a, a false humility. How am I doing? And it's often a harsh treatment of the body. It was an issue in the first century in Colossae. It's an issue in the 21st century in the Western world. On Friday, we called the church to pray and to fast. That's a denial of the body. 
But it's very different from what Paul's warning against here. When we call the church to pray and fast, what we're doing is not saying that food is bad and that you get right with God by not eating certain things. What we're saying is actually we recognize that Jesus is the bread of life and we want to lay hold of him first and foremost. Another thing we see is about special days. You get righteous by observing particular days. This can still happen. It happens, we've talked about Christmas this morning, it can happen at Christmas. People, Christians can get very religious about Christmas. That You have to observe Christmas to be a Christian. Actually, you don't. You are entirely free to ignore Christmas. I think Christmas is something to be celebrated. It's a great time to, for all kinds of reasons. It's a great opportunity for mission. But the reality is we don't know that Jesus was born on December the 25th. More likely he was born in the Feast of Tabernacles, end of September, beginning of October. It's an arbitrary date in a sense, which has more to do with the turning of the year than necessarily the actual birth of Christ. You don't get saved because you observe Christmas. Or think about some people getting very caught up in Lent. Got to give things up for Lent. You can, you're free to, but you don't have to. Adds nothing to your salvation if you do. Adds nothing to your salvation. Takes nothing from it if you don't. Or how about this one? And treading carefully, next Sunday is Remembrance Sunday. You're free to wear a poppy. Some of you are this morning. I'll wear a poppy next Sunday. But you don't have to. But actually in our society, it can feel like now you do. That no newsreader can appear without a poppy. No MP can appear on TV without a poppy. If they did, they wouldn't be righteous. They'd be condemned. Actually, that's kind of a totalitarian, it's a kind of a Marxist philosophy. And as Christians, I don't want to be subject to a totalitarian Marxist philosophy. I'm subject to the rule of Christ. If you want to wear a poppy, you wear a poppy. If you don't, you're free not to. And no one's to judge you on that because it doesn't save you. It's Christ alone that saves you. Or searching for a deeper and higher spiritual insights, particularly obsession with angels seems to be an issue here. Well, I'm afraid in all kinds of sections of so-called Christianity, we see that. Another book comes out with somebody's revelation, vision of going to heaven and seeing stuff, which actually is probably all made up and bunkum. And everybody says, oh, isn't this amazing? No, actually, you've got the Bible and you've got Jesus. You don't need somebody else's strange vision, some revelation. You don't need some higher spiritual insight. It's all here in the book, revealed to us in Christ Jesus. And what Paul said to the Colossians and he'd say to us is, you get sucked into these things and it will impoverish your spiritual health. You lose connection with the head because the way to spiritual health is by Christ alone. There's nothing else we need. It's just Jesus. He's the one that we need. And the way that we find Jesus and the way that we work out what it is to be Jesus' people is through his body. It's through the church. And it's staying connected to the body. It's staying connected to the church, which keeps you spiritually healthy and keeps you spiritually sane. You get detached from the body and you lose spiritual health and you get caught up in all kinds of weird spiritual stuff. It's by staying in the body that the nonsense gets knocked out of us and we are kept spiritually sane and spiritual healthy. It keeps us grounded and it keeps us growing. The ligaments and the sinews held together, growing as God causes the body to grow. Loving the church is the way to spiritual health. It's the way to stay healthy. It's the way to stay sane. And oh, that we would be the Colossians 1 verse 4 type of church. We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. 
Oh, that that might be our reputation as well. That we'd be a church who loves the church for the supremacy of Christ in all things and even through suffering and for our spiritual health. Let's be people who acknowledge the supremacy of Christ, who look to the head and understand what that means for us as his body. Let's be people who are willing to count the costs to sacrifice and suffer if we need to because we're laying hold of something far more precious and far more worthwhile. And let's be people that, that commit to spiritual health by committing to working out our faith in the body, in the church, with one another as members of the body of Christ, his people, his disciples, destined for glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And then the band of worship and I'm going to shoot down the road to 502. Jesus, thank you that you are the head and you have the supremacy in all things. Lord, thank you that we see something of that as we gather in the things that we do, we celebrate, we say. I pray even this morning that you would uh, lock that in our hearts, maybe in a fresh way. I pray that for those maybe who need revelation of what the church is, what the body is, that that would come out of what's been said, out of what happens now. I pray as we come to take bread and wine, that physical image, picture of the body of Christ, as we proclaim your death until you come, we would again be amazed at what it means to serve the head who is beginning and the firstborn from the dead, the one who has changed the whole order of creation by your resurrection, life and power. I pray that we'd know something of this power at work amongst us. I pray you'd keep any of us from spinning out off the edges of church life. I pray keep us connected into community, connected to the body that we might be healthy, we might be sane, and that together we would display your glory. May we be a church which is known for our faith in Christ and our love for the saints. In your name, Jesus. Amen.